0: You're about to join Jerry Parker, Moritz Siebert, and Niels Kostrup-Larsen on their raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing, and learn about the most dependable and consistent, yet often overlooked, investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series.
1: Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Moritz Siebert and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If this is the first time we meet, our hope is that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalogue of all the episodes we have produced and you may have missed. And for those of you who are regular listeners, and if you appreciate the content we produce, we would be grateful if you would go to iTunes and leave a rating and review as they actually matter more for the iTunes algorithm than you can imagine, and it helps other people to discover the podcast. Moritz, how are you doing this Saturday afternoon? Howdy, howdy, Niels. I'm doing fine. How are you? Doing very well. The sun is back here in Denmark, at least today. It has been pretty much raining all week, so uh, today is a good day. Wow, quite opposite here. We had a sunny week and now it's raining. (laughs) In terms of sort of a quick review of the week, I mean, I know you and I are going to say probably many times today that this was probably one of the most boring weeks we've seen in the markets for a long time. But I did pick up that, uh, you know, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, the expansion has paused for a while now. The uh, total balance sheet fell actually slightly for the fourth consecutive week to about 6.9 trillion, down 60 billion from a week ago and about 200 billion from June 10 high. And interestingly enough, Dow Jones, S&P 500, the DAX, the FTSE, just to name a few, they all made their last highs on June 8th. Clearly, not a coincidence at least not in my view. Of course, the Nasdaq is completely a different story. Nothing seems to be able to stop it. But let's not forget that it is not the first time that the Nasdaq made its final high before a massive sell-off a few months after the broader indices. In fact, you only need to go back to the last crisis, tech bubble and the great financial crisis. So perhaps this time isn't different when everything is said and done. That's pretty much what I picked up this week. Nothing too exciting. So I'm interested if you have found any exciting stuff happening uh, in the markets, yeah, I mean, my my portfolio, I think, had a
2: pretty much a snooze fest for the past week. Uh, it, it's been on a wellness trip, just relaxing. Nothing happened. <laughs> I've mentioned it before. I've made three basis points, which is, you know, that, that's flat, right? and And when I looked right. at the contribution of individual markets, it's been an, Essentially, quiet across the board. There hasn't been a single market that's that's moved a, a lot. So, uh, really, not much to talk about. But like you say, at the same time, there's some interesting stuff happening in the markets. The Nasdaq making new highs. Tesla going super strong. I mean, I think the last time we spoke, Niels, we've mentioned that it, you know, is now north of a thousand. Well, it's approaching fifteen hundred now. It's done about fifty percent in two or three weeks, or something like that. The same is true for Nikola, which is an electric truck company. All of those stocks are very, very strong. And what I can read by, you know, looking at the news and and all the the research that we get and email summaries and things like that is that apparently there is more and more retail money going into the markets. Citadel has been quoted that they think there's about 25% of the volume now is retail money in stocks, which is a lot. So... Mom and Pop are participating because countries are some of them still in lockdown. There's not much to do, no football, no soccer, no nothing. I'm not sure about whether that's exactly true everywhere. So they seem to have a new pastime, which is
1: trading in stocks. It's interesting you mentioned that. I was actually also going to mention that a thing about the retail participation. And it's funny you mentioned that Citadel estimates that 25% of the volume is retail. And of course you because we must have been reading the same article. Because You know how they know that, and that is because free platforms like Robinhood, where it's free to trade, and you kind of ask yourself, how on earth do they make money if they offer it for free? Well, it's not free because, in a sense, they sell the data, and they sell it to people like Citadel. Citadel has all the data of these uh, Robinhooders, which I'm not sure is going to be to the benefit of the Robinhooders themselves, but as you say right now seems like everything is going up. The other truck company you mentioned, um, I mean, Tesla's trip to heaven, so to speak, in terms of the share price is astonishing. But the other truck company I think you mentioned, I don't think they've ever produced a truck yet. I think it's all kind of on based on expectation that they may produce a truck once. Yes, agreed. Yeah. We've
2: seen those moves. I mean, remember a couple of weeks back, uh, Hertz was going into bankruptcy, and the next day the stock is 100%. I mean... Yeah funny things happen. Yes, Nikola has never produced a truck. Tesla is worth more than uh, the largest car companies, the largest established, uh, you know, brand car companies of the Mm. world together. And yet, how many Teslas do you see compared to Toyotas and BMWs and all that, right? And they've never made a substantial profit. I know they've had a couple of good surprises in, in recent quarters where they've produced a few more cars than people anticipated. But in terms of are they actually making a solid profit like on consecutive quarters? That has never happened before. And yet the company is um, trading at sky-high valuations. So yeah. I guess people are looking at that. They're, it's, it's pure growth. They're re- regarding their stock or the company as a tech company, not necessarily as a car company. And who am I to say that, you know, what, whatever the price is, it's the wrong price. I'm just, you know, the bystander and observing that, A lot of stocks have very, very erratic moves, very, very strong moves to the upside, uh, to valuation levels that seem,
1: well, lofty. I mean, I know that we normally don't talk much about what we think of the levels, because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter from from a systematic point of view. But I will say, and I'm sure many of uh, our listeners today, that I'm not the only one feeling this really does remind me about 1999 leading into 2000, where Stocks that never made a profit were hardly, you know, had only reached sort of IPO stage, and they were just trading at incredible, as you say, lofty prices, right? But from a trading point of view, if we're just going to put a little bit of trend following stint to this, I find this really interesting, right? Because, and we'll come to this uh, later today in our in, in our conversation, because we will reveal a little bit more about what we're about to launch hopefully next week in a few days. And so one of the things that that comes to mind is this discussion between momentum versus value. And what's interesting about it is that I can certainly see investing both from the value side and from the momentum side. Because clearly if you have things that you sold off massively but doesn't go out of business the people who look for value will at some point pick this up as this must be really cheap, let's start buying some of this. So a lot of the benefit you get from a value investment point of view is really in the initial part of the trade where if you get in at at decent levels and market starts to kind of reprice itself back to normality, that move up is really where they can make a lot of their money. But Tesla is a good situation to explain how people who do momentum or trend-following where we often make most of their money, and that's in the final stage, this parabolic move you see in some of these markets where, frankly, trend followers and other momentum managers are the only people stupid enough to still belong in that trade, a little bit like what we saw. You know, we did say that nothing happened this week. Something actually did happen more this week, and that's in the fixed income sector. I mean, I don't know what the... Bond markets are telling us, but they're telling a different story than the stock markets. I mean, suddenly you have again a big dip in the U.S. ten-year and thirty-year yield, and that's not normally something associated with oh, everything is honky-dory, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so something you know, I, I do think it was a little bit of an interesting observation, at least. But you could say the same thing about interest rates in Europe going negative, and uh, and of course in you in the U.S. now going close to negative a lot of investors probably missed the last bit because they felt like most normal human beings would feel that there is no value left in fixed income. But if you're pure price-based and trend followers as we are, actually there could still be a decent, uh, still a decent upside in these markets.
2: Yes, I think that's true. I mean, there could still be some good upside in Australian bonds and US bonds and Canadian bonds, right? Across the curve, actually. So there's there's no reason to... To exit the long position in those bonds prematurely. I mean, we wouldn't we wait for the signal and then we, you know, reverse or get out. I agree. And there's a saying, I'm not sure if it's right, but it it goes like this. The bond market is normally the clever market, right? And then tells the macro players where the world is going, whereas the equity market is not. And like you like you say or like you alluded to, the bond market right now is is going up, meaning yields are going lower which, you know, I'm not sure if that is a good sign in the long
1: term for equities. And gold has been making new highs. Gold has been making new highs, yeah. And speaking about Australian bonds, just to uh, finish things off or round things off on our side, I mean, yes, also a a tiny positive week overall. And from a sector point of view, it was really led by stocks, NASDAQ in particular. Fixed income, it was on our side actually led by the Australian bonds, hence the, the reference And then on the commodity side, coffee and corn performed pretty well, and wheat and copper uh, didn't do so well for us. Currencies were slightly down, and volatility actually did okay as well. But the other thing, just to, um, to kind of show in statistical terms how few trends, at least we detect at the moment from the way we do things, I mean, our risk budget is probably down to about a quarter of our maximum risk level, so... So we're just not picking up any sustained long-term trends at the moment. I don't know about your whether you measure you know your risk levels per se, but uh, we're, we're not seeing uh, a lot of opportunities.
2: Yeah I mean I, I do it in a slightly different way than you guys as you know, but I think I, I agree with what you're saying because what happens regularly with my type of systems is that you know I get out of a position and I immediately get into another one right? So it's kind of like a reversal, say from long to short or from short to long. Sure. But what I've noticed in the past couple of weeks is that I'm exiting positions either with a profit or with a loss and I'm not taking on a new one. Right. So like the cocoa trade, right? I'm getting out of the cocoa long. I'm not sure if I mentioned that, but I, I exited cocoa this week at a small loss, but I'm, you know, I'm not reversing it to the short side. I'm just sitting there flat Uh, You know, there's nothing wrong with having a flat position as far as I'm concerned. I, you know, I like systems that allow me to have a flat position. But what I observe is that a lot of the markets that I trade, they go out of one position
1: and then they go to flat and they sit there in flat for a longer period of time. Yeah, it's just one of those periods where it's a little bit uh, dry in the land of trend. Um, so a couple of things, I know there hasn't been much going on as such, but we did find a few things that we wanted to share with people. There's a couple of articles that we wanted to discuss. Uh, we do want to talk about what we plan to uh, release next week, of course. And actually, I stumbled across something that I thought was relevant to many people just to at least be aware of. Um, it was the latest interview published on uh, on Macro Voices, actually, with Eric Townsend. And uh, it was Hugh Hendry, the hedge fund manager who used to run his own fund eclectica
2: chaos is coming
1: exactly I mean who kind of stepped away from the industry a couple of years ago but of course um like most of us uh it's difficult to completely forget uh, your route so he's coming back to some degree or at least in some kind of capacity of potentially advisor or or mentor I think he's planning to do some stuff uh, like that and 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 obviously he's been around and he's not uh, afraid of of sharing his opinion, and he put out this um, thought-provoking piece where he talks about, and, and I guess this is relevant when you, you do a podcast, so most people who listen to podcasts are familiar with Joe Rogan, who has the biggest podcast in the world, but he actually suggested you should put Joe Rogan as the next Fed chair, which, of course, is a prerogative title, um, but um, what, he's, what he's basically saying in the article, and I kind of skimmed it this morning, is that he feels it's time to try something different and maybe something extreme because just doing the same thing as we've done the last 20 years is unlikely going to yield us a very different uh, result, which of course we know is the definition of insanity anyway. So that's kind of one thing I would recommend people to pick up. I'm sure it's on the uh, Macro Voices website. If you sign up, I'm sure you'll get access to to that PDF. Did you see any interesting articles on your site?
2: Yeah, well, the one with you, Henry. I picked that up on Macro Voices, and I had a look at the uh, the download presentation. I think it's about you know ten pages or maybe fifteen pages written by you, Henry, Henry about uh, his view of the world. And um, I found that interesting. I mean, I've never met him personally, but you know, when people see him on Twitter or uh, you know Instagram, I think he has a couple of social media accounts. You know, he's he's quite a character. Yeah, he lives in the Caribbean now, I think, in Saint Barth, and is into surfing and these type of things, you know, fair enough. But he does have his views of the world. And like many others, I think, I don't want to say all, but like many others, I believe that their outlook is an inflationary one. Not necessarily maybe this year or next, but at some point in the next couple of years, I hear more and more people forecast that there will be a, a hefty inflationary shock to the upside. Uh, and that's not only, you know, you can read it between the lines of Hugh Henry, where he says, well, you know, we need to, chaos is coming, we need to try out different things. You know, the central bank system that we all got so used to is no longer working. But you read it in the uh, Jim Grant, for instance, the, the, the Observer, um, and, and many other people also in revision who look at the macro environment, they forecast an inflationary future. There are some that forecast the opposite, where they say, you know, because of really bad demographics, because of the lockdown, because of just businesses crumbling, we'll be headed the other direction, into a deflationary future. So, you know, pick your poison. None of that is great, but I have the
1: feeling that the majority is in the inflationary camp at this point in time. I think that's true, although I think a lot of people actually long-term agree that inflation is coming, but I think that it's the timing because... Someone like Raul at Real Vision, I mean, he does expect deflation before the inflation comes. So it's more of a timing issue. And, I've, you know, you and I have, um, as part of this special project, we've spoken to a lot of great macro thinkers. And um, from memory, just sort of from memory, I think a lot of them were actually, as you say, in the camp of inflation at some point. What I find most interesting about this discussion is actually more how quickly could it come back? Because I think most people uh, would expect that we're going to see it coming, we can make adjustments, the Fed can you know, raise rates by a couple of points and then we're fine because that's what happened in the last couple of times in the last 20 years where it's sort of peaked its head above water. I have a sneaky feeling that, as, as you suggest, that when it does come, it's not going to stop at, at the usual level. So it's going to be real inflation. But what I think a lot of people have forgotten, something I mentioned a couple of weeks ago in our, in our conversation, and that is just how quickly inflation can come. So back in 1915, inflation was 1%. Two years later, it was 21%. In 1945, it was also 1%. Two years later, it was 19%. And in 1972, it was 3%. In 1974, it was 12%. And I think that's going to be the canary in the coal mine in terms of can we really get a true inflationary shock? And you would think with all the central bank action that's been going on, which has been extreme, that something extreme could potentially show up, without a doubt. What else, uh, Morris, you're about to say something? (laughs) Yeah, no, it's
2: difficult for me to really, you know, say anything about that. It's probably above my pay grade to have these comments, but I agree with you, Niels. I think if inflation shows up, it could very well be a surprise. You don't expect it, and all of a sudden it's there, and CPI numbers run well north of 2%. And I don't think that central banks or governments have an incentive to stop it, really. Because look at all that debt that is outstanding, right? Mm. If they can run inflation at higher levels for a couple of years, then that would be very beneficial for them. Because, you know, raising interest rates in this environment, I mean, very, very difficult, I'd say, right? So maybe they'll just let it rip for a bit and accept that it's maybe 5%, 6 7% or something like that for three or four years. Mm. Who knows? But, you know, one of the things to watch out for and... Uh, Definitely gets, uh, at least it gets me thinking about, uh, you know, asset allocation aside from my trend following systems, physical gold, Bitcoin, those type of things, uh, real estate, right? All of that,
1: I think, is, is worth uh, a couple of thoughts. Yeah, no, absolutely. Just sort of maybe throwing in a couple of topics that we uh, talked a little bit about last week, just to maybe continue down that road a little bit, just to give people an impression of what's going on. I was looking at the Morgan Stanley uh, CTA positioning uh, report, the latest one, which comes out early in the week, so it's not like as of Friday night or anything like that, but it's a few days old. I mean, it's interesting to see that certainly some of their quote-unquote signals, their trend-following signals are starting to flip in the equity side, back to long. And actually, uh, when you look at what they claim then to be the CTA positioning based on their clients, CTA clients, what their actual positions are, it is starting now to look more green than red. I would say um, you know, more and more markets are flipping to the long side. I don't know how big long positions, I would imagine not very big. But that's interesting to see. Even though there's still a big discrepancy, I would say, between the quote-unquote Morgan Stanley model and its weighted signal and what the actual managers are doing. On the fixed income side, it's much more aligned. I would say there's a couple of short signals in their model but on the CTA positioning side, every single market pretty much is long. Currencies is mixed though. There's a few places where their model shows long and 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 where the actual positioning is short in those currencies. And the reason I mention that, and then of course maybe commodities, just to uh, round it off. For the most part, they agree on the long and short side, meaning that where the model, their model is short, then the actual managers are short, and 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 vice versa. But only a few markets actually long at this stage uh, in the commodity side. But the reason I mention it is just because it does get a lot of press. Uh, maybe they're also bored, so they start writing about CTA positioning, which is not the most exciting topic in the world. But it does get a lot of press from time to time when they blame managed, you know, CTAs for driving markets down. Funnily enough, I've not seen one single article about CTAs pushing the NASDAQ to new all-time highs. Which, of course, we aren't, but in any way, I mean... We still like the credit. Exactly. (laughs) We would like a little bit of credit here, right? So, um, yeah, anyways, probably shouldn't expect that either. Exactly. So those were some of the things that I picked up. Then I picked up a couple of articles before we get to this secret project we wanted to talk about. I mean, there's a couple of articles out on the blog that Mark Ratzemski, or I think it's more or less right... Who by the way will join us in a in, in in a in a week or two weeks time. Then I have to learn how to pronounce his last name. Bloody hell. So anyways, he did write a few interesting posts this week. One of them was about downside protection. I mean, what's kind of the the best way, or what are the things to think about from a strategy point of view, in order to determine what is your kind of your downside protection? He starts by quoting the rule from Warren Buffett, and that is rule number one: don't lose money. And rule number two is don't forget rule number one, which is obviously sim- you know easier said than done. But he goes into you know a discussion where he breaks it down to four real questions, and that is what is the strategy for preserving money? What will be the tactics employed for protection? how is downside risk measured, and how do you measure the cost of protection, right? And I don't know if you had a chance to see it, if you have any views, but some of the things he talks about, for example, on the strategy, what's your strategy for doing that? He talks about having complete protection to some downside level. I I imagine that could be the same as, you know, buying put options and, If it was on equities, for example, that could be one way of being sure you had some downside protection, right? You could have diversification. Obviously, one of our favorites is diversification. And then you could have some level of risk management or or risk adjustment. So again, implementing quite a bit of what trend followers do as well in in their ways of designing their models. And then you could have the tactics uh, you use to uh, implement the strategy. Again, diversification is one of them. And also he mentioned the same dynamic adjustment to position risk, which we also talk about whether or not you should change positions during a trade. And then he also has this option. You could actually implement it as as an option hedge. And then he talks about the measure of success of the strategy. How do you know if it's doing well? What's the upside-downside beta? The downside volatility uh, that it comes with? And then also the relative drawdown. Um, and the tail risk that incurs. And then finally, he talks a little bit about the cost of doing these things, which is actually one of the really interesting things, right? Because a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot, but some people believe that it's a, you know, a better way is just to keep buying out of the money, put options, and, and you'll be fine, then you have some level of protection. As if it's free, so to speak. But I think most studies show that that's a, quite an expensive way of getting downside protection. But what you're really trying to do, for those who are a little bit into options, I know you're an expert in this, it's much more than I am, but essentially if you think about what what a great strategy would look like, it's kind of like a straddle where it makes you a lot of money if markets go up a lot and it makes you a lot of money if markets go down a lot. Somewhere in between that, it may not do that much. But of course, we know with straddles, they look like a V and that V normally meets somewhere below zero, meaning there is a cost to it and what what we so to speak as managers are trying to do in when we design our system is to create a return stream that moves that V a little bit further up so that the bottom or the peak of the V, so to speak, gets closer to zero. And of course we know to some degree, or at least we could argue to some degree, that trend following is a strategy that gives you protection. It's not a guaranteed protection, but it has historically given you protection And there's no cost to it because historically, at least for most managers, there's actually a positive return. So those were some of his comments. Keeping it simple with downside protection is the title of that post on his blog post.
2: I like those blog posts, Niels. And I'm looking forward to uh, having Mark Reszczynski, trying the name, Uh, on our show in two weeks' time. I think it's going to be on the 25th or that weekend somewhere. And we'll, we'll touch on those points. And, and like you say, you know, there's different ways of um, protecting your portfolio against too much downside. I mean, like you say, a very clean way is to actually buy puts, right? Out of the money puts. But it's not like you say, it doesn't come for free. Nobody yeah. is selling you an option for zero. Nobody's selling you an option, which is essentially an opportunity, right? To benefit from prize moves in a non-linear, convex way. Nobody's selling that to you for nothing. So the cost of a straddle, which is, you know, at the money, long put and at the money, long call is is always a, a positive cost, right? So they always meet below zero, like you say. And um, I guess it's a question of what level do you think is fair if you want to use these type of strategies to protect your portfolio, right? Because they depend on implied volatility first and foremost. And if it's a too high volatility that you're paying, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it. There may be Environments where those positions can be offered and traded relatively cheaply, and maybe that is a good thing to do. But this is, you know, beyond the purpose of this podcast, I think. Sure. But what I like about Mark's post is um, he essentially incentivizes the reader or the investor. Let's say the reader is an investor to ask certain questions, uh, fair questions, deserved questions to their investment managers, such as, for instance, how do you measure risk? How would you protect your downside? How do you go about protecting your portfolio? Those type of things, right? And I guess we as trend followers, as we, if, if we get asked these questions, then we can give answers. You know, we can mention things such as, for instance, I'm using a stop loss on a trading stop, right? That protects my position. That protects my portfolio. I'm using diversification. I'm not putting too much risk into a single position. I'm not pyramiding. All these type of things, right? We have answers to that. But I think, you know, some investment grant managers, they may have the answer in the back of their head, but it's kind of convoluted or opaque, and they're not going to be as clear-cut and outspoken as maybe we would be uh, when they're being asked the question because they want to make it sound mysterious and special, right? Here's the special sauce. I cannot mention that because it's a very proprietary downside risk protection uh, technique yada, yada, yada. I'm not so sure that is really true. But of course, if you keep it in the dark and you're this mysterious hedge fund that allows you to charge a much higher fee than, you know, we CTAs can charge these days.
1: If you can get away with it. Yeah, it's one way to describe a 10-day moving average. You could have called it something very fancy. right? (laughs) But uh, yeah, sure. Definitely, we're going to get into many more of uh, his uh, posts One other one I just want to mention since we're um, speaking about Mark that also caught my attention. Again, it's one of his July posts. And that is actually that we're seeing at the moment, and I find that interesting actually, we're seeing at the moment another period where the return dispersion between the upper 20% CTAs and the lower 20% CTAs are at very high levels. Uh, The highest level was in fact around uh, the autumn of 2008. So we know 2008 was a great year overall, but clearly from this uh, research, the return dispersion uh, was um, pretty large, meaning that there was a lot of regret among investors if they picked the wrong managers uh, during that period of time, so to speak. So I do think that's another interesting topic, uh, return dispersion, because from my few decades in this industry, I I certainly have this recollection that back in the 90s at least, when you looked at, say, John Henry, he's not in business anymore, but he was very famous back then, one of the biggest managers. And if you looked at his monthly performance, you could pretty much guess where the rest of the field would be. That's just not the case anymore, in my opinion. So I do find it's a fascinating area, and it doesn't make it easier for investors really to... To pick managers, I would say, because you really have to have a good grasp uh, of the strategy and the markets and uh, trade it and all of those things in order to have some level of, you know, anticipation or or, or how should I say, it? some level of idea of, of how it's going to perform and, and when it's going to be different to maybe other managers. So, uh, yeah, that was another post I Now, Mort, is it time that we talk a little bit about what we've been up to with Rob for the last few weeks? Lift the curtain. Lift the curtain. But I think most people probably guessed it because I think it's fair to say that in the last month, maybe month and a half, we have been talking a lot more about global macro issues than that we would normally do and i think it's fair to say and uh, it's not like we've rehearsed any kind of spiel about why we did this or we you and i are just having a conversation about why we chose to do this project but but i think it's fair to say that the world is becoming more global macro in the way it behaves and what's moving around and there's a lot of things that could change quite rapidly that may have a major impact you could argue that markets are at extremes. You could say that social mood is at extremes. You could say that the geopolitical tensions are getting close to uh, pretty high and all of those things. So I think, in general, the three of us have found that you know global macro is important to pay attention to. And, of course, we know that whatever happens from a global macro standpoint will be reflected in the trends that we're going to identify through our system. So they are tied together, of course. So we're not moving completely away from what we love. But we decided to do a separate series, which is a global macro series, where we allow ourselves to go outside our normal playground and talk to some of the best thinkers that we can we can get in touch uh, with and, and we can get on the show to uh, share some of their views. And I think we got a pretty strong lineup, actually. I agree. I'm not sure if we want to mention the names right now. Well, I think but, we uh, can talk about some of the names. I don't you know, I don't think it's a big secret. I mean, yeah. what I think what what we hope from today's talking about it is really something and where we would say maybe we would not just hope it, we would really ask that you do this as a as a loyal listener of of, uh, of our podcast. We really do hope that not only will you listen to these episodes as they come out, and they'll be clearly different, and you so you'll know which ones we're talking about. And they won't come out on a Saturday or Sunday like the Systematic Investors and all of that. They'll come out during the week. But we truly hope that not only will you listen, but you actually will do us a favor and share them with everyone that you think they would be relevant for, whether it's social media, your emails, whatever it might be, because... Some of the topics we discussed are really, really important in terms of what's going to happen next.
2: I agree. I mean, I certainly had a lot of fun doing those interviews. And by the way, we should mention that it wasn't just you and I, Niels. We did them together with our friend Robert Carver. So the three of us running the interviews with quite an interesting lineup of people, names such as Mike Green, Campbell Harvey, the professor and inventor of the yield curve signal, I enjoyed that a lot. I think that was a, was a really good one. But they were all great. Julian Brickton, we'll have Larry McDonald. I'm not sure it's probably about 10 or so interviews, if I'm not mistaken.
1: Yeah, it will be probably more over time. But there will be initial phase. There will be 10 conversations, yeah. The
2: focus is the state of the world. Where is the macro world today? And where do you see it moving forward? What is the impact for the US dollar? Where do equity markets go? What does it mean for interest rates? All of those type of things, inflation, deflation, Bitcoin, gold, across the board i found it super interesting and looking back at the conversations i also found it interesting that there has never really been i mean yes some people are in the same camp right but they get to their answer in different ways mm. and it's never kind of like you know that one conversation just sounds like the one before they always have different angles and different perspective
1: yeah no absolutely absolutely and uh, we will be kicking off with Julian Brickton actually uh, this week uh, and, and and probably one, more, one, one other episode. So expect a couple of epi- new episodes coming out this week from this series, which we really hope you uh, will love as much as we love doing them. Um, they were fascinating. And as you say, maybe some of the conclusions are the same, but certainly different ways of getting to them. And of course, um, I still remember very clearly Julian's uh, conversation when we got to... to uh, to Bitcoin. Um, I won't spoil it here, but it's pretty funny. Uh, but yes. it's also pretty real. Yeah, no, it's just fascinating. And I think, I mean, I think it's fair to say that, you know, everyone who listens to us every week, and, and and of course, all the episodes of other podcasts or or tweets that we read, we all have one thing in common. And that is, we want to try and navigate the future of these financial markets. So we, we have different ways of doing it. But we want to pay attention, and as you rightly said, we have our trend-following portfolios, but they're part of a bigger asset allocation, strategic asset allocation that we all need to do as 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 individuals. And so, paying attention to these thinkers, helping them to, for you to become, and certainly it's made me a much more informed investor as well. Not just this this series of conversations, but all the people that I try to keep up with um, during the week. I think if you get the global macro picture right in the next five to 10 years, I think you can do exceptionally well for your family. But I think if you get it wrong, I think it could be devastating. I'm truly of the believer in that fourth turning that we've been talking a little bit about on our podcast, meaning the next 10 years could be this, you know, like actually, as you said, uh, Hugh Hendry's piece, you know, the return of chaos. I truly believe we could see. Complete chaos in the markets, which will be probably great for trend following because we don't care why, we just want to see the markets move. So I just think we're, we're entering one of these periods that will be pretty much vital for investors and will set the tone for some generations without a doubt, especially those where you may not have enough time if you get it wrong meaning, you know, if you're... Uh, I'm just picking a number here, but, you know, if you're probably around my age, you know, early 50s, right? If you get the next 10 years wrong, you may not have enough time to make that, you know, make up for that damage before your retirement. You, you've got a better head start than, than me since you're so young, Moritz. Um, but uh, Thank But you. no, and but, <laughs> but of course, it's also... Incredibly important. If you just think about people who are maybe in their 30s now, right, where uh, maybe they're a little bit more mid-30s, right, when they just started out, they had the great financial crisis to deal with and it was difficult to get a job and all of that. So not not the greatest start to their sort of active career. And now you have COVID, right? Now you have a completely different crisis to deal with. I mean, that's a lot to deal with in a short space of time before you really get going. So anyways, I mean, I think that's certainly some of the motivations from my side to wanting to do this and wanting to share these conversations with some great thinkers. Uh, We have Daniel DiMartino Booth, which was another fantastic conversation. She always brings it to the conversation for sure. And as as a Fed insider, having worked for the Fed, knowing what really goes on inside the Fed, I mean, what more relevance could can you bring during these times and we have another one which is a really interesting one i guess that i uh, thoroughly enjoyed which was uh, preston pish from the investors podcast which i think will be also one that we may bring out this week he had a very broad view of of many points in the uh, in the markets in the economy i thought it was fascinating to hear his view and of course he like we do, have the, the benefit of speaking to uh, fantastic people uh, on their podcast, um, and I'm sure many of our listeners uh, listen to them as well. So there was another couple of episodes that just brings uh, comes to mind as we talk. Eric Townsend, by the way, Macro Voices, he's going to be on uh, as well. Also someone who speaks to lots of uh, great thinkers like Hugh Hendry on his latest episode, and which helps him inform his opinion and his views. And they were fascinating, especially when it came again, Bitcoin, another very interesting topic for him. He wrote a book about all of these digital currencies, by the way. So it's going to be exciting. It's exciting. And I hope people will enjoy listening to it. I
2: I agree with what you just said, Niels. It's important to have, let's say it's important to stay informed about those topics in the current day and age, especially if you, you know, depend on your portfolio, for instance, for retirement purposes, right? I mean, if uh, one bad year, a couple of bad decisions could really cause great damage. So um, I think it's a good idea to, to have a view, have a picture of the world in front of you. It doesn't mean that you need to agree with all the opinions that are voiced by our participants or by ourselves. But I always found it very helpful to me to at least get the different views and get the different opinions, right? And hear the argument for inflation, but at the same time, hear the argument for deflation. Hear the argument for a rise in Bitcoin, but also hear the arguments for people saying, you know what, I think it's probably going to zero. But hearing the extremes and all the stuff in the middle helps you think more broadly and come to terms with your own way of thinking.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I also just want to plug uh, a couple of more guests that we've been um, speaking with. Jim Pianco, who is very, very generous when it comes to sharing great research uh, on the internet, especially on Twitter. Obviously a veteran uh, in, in the research space in terms of economies. And someone who surprised me really positively, someone that I'd only myself learned about recently, is Lynn Alden. I mean, what a deep thinker in terms of what's going on, and putting things in historical perspective, uh, fascinating conversation. And one thing that you said just there, March, which I think is so crucial, in the last four months, we've had a 35-plus percent equity sell-off. And now things are, certainly on the US side, pretty much back to where it came from, and the NASDAQ, we know, is even higher, right? I know Europe is not quite there, but getting there. I think investors have been given a second chance to make sure they are truly diversified in their portfolio. For the simple kind of model portfolios that, that I do and share with people um, or on our side as a business where we look at, okay, what does a, say, a 20% allocation to us plus a 40% allocation to stocks and a 30% allocation to bonds. Very simple stuff, right? Or you can even go you know, 50-50 between a trend follower and, 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 and an equity market. When you saw in front of your eyes the importance and the positive impact that that simple allocation had during the month of February, March, April, May, because I also look at the V-shaped side of things where CTAs clearly gave back some of the profits from March, but then where your equities and your bonds uh, kicked in. But just looking at how stable a simple portfolio like that behaved during that period of time, and now we are back, so those who didn't have it have a chance to implement it right now before the next whatever happens, I think it's just so critical. So so I think we share these things because we want you to take action. Listening to us every week is great, but it's not going to do anything for you unless you're prepared to take action. We know a lot of you. We, we know a lot of you personally. We know a lot of you are doing your own systems, etc., etc. But if you're not interested in doing that, at least what you can do is to go out and look for a few managers, put them in your portfolio, Make a strategic decision to have whatever 20-25% of your portfolio in trend following. Maybe something we don't articulate that directly, but it is truly my belief that this could be a game changer in 5 or 10 years' time, even though we can agree that the last 5 or 10 years hasn't been great for this investment strategy. But you can't ignore the fact that some European equity markets are still below water compared to their year 2000 high. So the fact that CTAs may have not made any money for five years doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things. I mean, you've got equity markets still underwater for 20 years, so a five-year period is is nothing to, to worry about. And the other thing I would say that comes across my desk a lot at the moment is something that, again, uh, a previous guest, but someone we refer to often, that's Chris Cole. I mean, Chris Cole, in the paper he wrote about the Dragon portfolio and the importance of looking at strategic asset allocation if you want to build a portfolio that's going to last you 100 years, which I think should be the aim for most people, because we can't time it deep down. We can be lucky, but deep down, we don't really know what the future brings. So so building a portfolio that is insensitive to even a 10 or a 15-year market regime but in the long term would do you and your family well, is important. And I come across so many people, and I'm fortunate that that they reach out and they say, you know, I listen to Chris Cole and his portfolio. It makes sense. You know, how do I get this trend following part into that portfolio? Which I think he concluded had to be around 18%. Those are the things that that I see right now more. It's and I think it's uh, it's really we're one of those uh, in one of those periods where it's critical that we do we take action.
2: I agree. It's probably a good end to this episode.
1: Yeah. Before we do, we should bring people up on, on the performance before we end up. So Beta 50 index up 39 bips for the month of July, still down two and a half for the year. The Sargen CTA index down a quarter percent and down two and a half percent as well for the year. The trend index down thirty bips so far in July, down about half a percent for the year. SockGen short-term traders index down 34 bips and up 2.6% for the year. The bridge alternative index is up 28 basis points, but down 1.8, 1.18, sorry, uh, for the year. And MSCI world, just to put it in context is up already 2.6% for the month of July, but still down 4% for the year. So yeah.
2: Any final thoughts, Moritz? No, looking forward to being back on next weekend. And, um, I think we'll have a couple of interesting guests lined up as well. So
1: um, looking forward to doing that. Yeah, we're back next week with Rob. He's joining us yes. uh, next week. So uh, keep your questions coming. Even though it's summer holiday, we uh, we will still be here. So uh, so send them to top tra- in, info at toptradersonplot.com as usual. And look out for these new episodes. We really truly hope that we can get them out, a couple of those uh, this week. And do us a big favor, share them. And um, if you wouldn't mind, leave a rating and review. If you have five minutes left uh, this weekend, leave a rating and review on on iTunes because it will help a lot of more people discover these uh, new episodes as well. So from Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. In the meantime, stay safe.
0: Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor podcast series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show.